preaching of the Word of God. We continue forward in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 5 through 12. No other name under heaven. Let's stand together, uh, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from chapter 4, verse 19, through uh, chapter 3, verse 19, through to chapter 4, verse 22. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed, and they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go up Aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So... They called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Amen. Please be seated. 
Have you ever faced persecution before? Have you ever encountered resistance to Christianity? Resistance to living like a Christian? What kind of resistance have you faced? What kind of threats have you faced as a Christian? How did you handle those threats? How do you believe the Lord would have you to handle such threats in the future? Do you believe that we live in a world that is open and glad to hear the gospel in general? Or do we live in a world that is filled with many strong pockets of evil resistance and rebellion to the gospel? So what do you expect to see in your life as you walk this world until you die? What do you expect to see in terms of persecution for you and for your loved ones, even for those sitting in this room right now? If you haven't considered the concept of persecution, not just academically, but personally, then you haven't really considered carefully God's Word or the world in which we live. If you believe that you can live the Christian life and somehow escape persecution, then you are not rightly understanding the path that lies ahead for faithful Christians. So I would encourage you to take note of Peter and John and how they deal with persecution in today's text. The title is No Other Name Under Heaven. This is where Peter has placed his hope is in Christ. Look at the setting of this third proclamation of the gospel by the apostle Peter. We'll look at the question that is asked of Peter and John. And then we'll look at Peter's answer in verses 8 through 12. And as usual, some questions that we may know and love and obey God more fully. So the setting, verses 5 through 7a. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked. So this is the setting. Peter and John, recall they had been taken into custody. We looked at that last week. And they've been kept in custody overnight awaiting this trial. The day after their arrest in the temple, they are brought before the Jewish ruling council. What is the composition of this ruling council? Who are these that were gathered together at Jerusalem? Who are these people? The text wants us to know. God wants us to know who these people are. First, they're called rulers. And this is a general term for a ruler, a commander, a chief, a leader. It's likely a summary term for the leaders of each class that we will look at mentioned afterward, rather than some specific unique class, these were the rulers amongst these various classes that will be mentioned. Commentary says the leaders are probably identical with the names given in verse 6. For example, they are the leading representatives of the high priestly class, which consisted of the chief priests and their families. This interpretation agrees with verse 23 and also with Luke chapter 20 verse 1 where the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are mentioned as the Jewish authorities who confront Jesus as he was teaching in the temple. So what does Acts 4 verse 23 say? And being let go, so Peter and John, this is after the ruling, they're let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. So there's not some separate class of rulers. Luke 20 verse 1 we see similarly, now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, so this is Jesus before he's crucified, that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him. So moving on, we'll look at these three groups. Elders, it means an elder of age, a term of rank or office. This Greek word is the source of Presbyterianism, church government led by elders. 
And it's also a term of rank or office. Commentary says, elders points to the civic leaders, the chief tribal and family heads, who often were more senior in age, as the term literally means old men. In later references, Acts' usage of the term splits between describing church elders and describing Jewish leaders who persecute the church. So this office of elder is held by those who were experienced, who were of age, and it references civil leaders, but also ecclesiastical leaders when used in Judaism. What about the scribes? The scribes are specialists in the law. These are the scholars who are sometimes mentioned together with the priests, sometimes with the Pharisees, which suggests that some Torah scholars belonged to the Pharisees, some to the Sadducees, while some would have been independent of such party affiliations. And these were likely Levites. These were the ones who were responsible for knowing God's law and for being available for consultation and helping with questions of the law. So the elders and the scribes are present in this gathering that is called a council later. Who else is present? Annas, the high priest. Now, he's not still the high priest. He was the high priest, but he maintained such influence in power and, and power in this time that he is referenced as the high priest. He is the father of John and Alexander, likely, who's mentioned earlier, uh, later. We don't know for sure if he's the father of Alexander, but probably. And he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. This family maintained power over the vast wealth and power of the Sadducean party, for decades during the first half of the first century. I encourage you to study about the Sadducean party and their connection with the Roman Empire and the astonishing amount of wealth and powerful leverage the Sadducean party maintained even over and against Rome because of their great wealth. Commentary says, Annas, the son of Sethi, was the first high priest appointed by the Roman governors after they imposed direct Roman rule in Judea after the dismissal of Herod Archelaus in 86. So the Jews were a conquered people. They were under tribute to Rome, and Rome had started appointing their high priests in 86. Annas served as high priest from 86 to AD 15. He was the first one in establishing this connection with Rome. In AD 30, which is the year that we're looking at now, Annas was the patriarch of the most powerful high priestly family in the first century. Josephus describes him as extremely fortunate. And I'll step back and say that getting yourself a hard copy of Josephus' works is something, if you don't already own it, go ahead and put that on your list of things to do and have it in your library. Going on with the commentary. For he had five sons, all of whom, after he himself had previously enjoyed the office for a very long period, became high priests of God, a thing that had never happened to another of our high priests. So that's a quote from Josephus describing this powerful family. Going on with the commentary. Annas is mentioned in Luke 3, 2, in connection with the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. Before Jesus was examined by the Sanhedrin, he was interrogated by Annas. We see this in John 18 and John 19. The five sons of Annas who were high priests were Eleazar, that's A.D. 16 to 17, Jonathan, that's A.D. 36 to 37, Theophilus, and you'll note that's bolded and italicized in your notes, Theophilus, A.D. 37 to 41, Matthias, A.D. 42 to 43, and Annas the Younger, beginning or in the year A.D. 62. Caiaphas, the incumbent high priest, was Annas' son-in-law. The fact that Annas is called the high priest underscores his standing in this Sanhedrin. So Luke, the eminent historian, physician, and scholar, presents to us an accurate description 
historically of the actual individuals who are present at this time and who are also referenced in multiple extra biblical histories of the time. So Caiaphas was also present. What do we know about Caiaphas? His full name was Joseph Caiaphas. He was the son-in-law of Annas and the high priest during Jesus' trial, during the interrogation of the apostles, and, as we'll see later, during Stephen's trial. He was appointed high priest by the Roman governor Valerius Gratus in A.D. 15. And again, let this really sink in. See the connection between beastly Rome and the whore Jerusalem. If you go to the book of Revelation, you will see this described. And we're seeing it, this is actually historically what is happening in that picture that's given to us in Revelation. And it's happened ever since. It is a theme that we need to be aware of as Christians. Going on with the commentary. He was in office under, this is Caiaphas, he was in office under Pontius Pilate from 26 to 36 AD and was removed from office by Lucius Vitellius, the governor of Syria in AD 36. Josephus mentions Caiaphas only in connection with his appointment and with his removal as high priest despite the fact that he held office for 18 years. The long tenure, rivaled only by the nine-year tenure of his father-in-law, Annas, suggests that he was a shrewd diplomat who was acceptable to two Roman governors. John mentions twice that Caiaphas was the high priest in the year of Jesus' crucifixion. So I hope that you're seeing here that Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants the reader of that time to really be connected to who these people were. And the readers of all time, God wants us to see and know who these people are and understand that evil has names and faces and institutions that are put to use for dark purposes. Now, who's the next person listed? It's John. And I'd like us to recall about Theophilus. This is from a sermon by Pastor Bill Kaiser, the words most excellent show that he is clearly a ruler or a former ruler. This is about Theophilus, who we know is mentioned in Acts chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. Only rulers or former rulers had that title used of them. Well, that narrows the candidates quite quickly. So the idea here is, who is Theophilus? A search through ancient literature shows that there were only two categories of people that had this title ascribed to them. Roman civil officials... One and two, high priests and or former high priests of the Jerusalem temple who were Sadducees appointed by Rome and loyal to Rome. They ruled on behalf of Rome. Those looking for a Gentile candidate have searched in vain for such a figure during the time that Luke wrote his gospel. There's no evidence of a Gentile leader. There is no Roman candidate who bore the name of Theophilus who could have had this book written to him. So recall, Luke and Acts are written to Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus. That phrase, that term, most excellent, that's what Pastor Kaiser is referencing. Unless you date this book much later than the Bible allows it to be dated. So if we stick to the mid-late 50s for Luke and Acts, Acts is probably early 60s, Luke, um, late 50s. If we stick to that, which is where the, when you look at the scriptures and all the clues in scripture, that's the date we need to give it. Now going on, but there was a high priest by the name of Theophilus who bore that title. Josephus tells us a fair bit about him, and he fits the Theophilus of this book and of Acts quite well. His Hebrew name was John or Johanan, and his Greek name was Theophilus, which means friend of God. Josephus uses both names but calls him Theophilus five times He was in the office of high priest from A.D. 37 to 31. And you recall the prior commentator lists him as one of the sons of Annas and a high priest, 37 to 41, but was deposed from office by King Herod. Josephus is clear that he continued to be a very influential leader of the people up until A.D. 66, even heading up an army. Why was he deposed by King Herod? Perhaps it was because he was converted to the faith. 
So it is likely that Theophilus was present here at this council in AD 30 before he was converted to Christianity. So when you see the word John here in this text, I believe it's very likely that this is Theophilus to whom Luke and Acts are written. And uh, it's a beautiful sovereignty of God uh, to see how the Lord um, placed Theophilus there at this time. And how Luke um, surely would have really enjoyed writing this section of the book, uh, sending it to Theophilus. Next is Alexander. We don't know anything about Alexander. The fourth member of the family noted. Otherwise unattested is what one scholar says. Nothing is known about Alexander. Most of the first century individuals, so there's a little clue here, most of the first century individuals with the name Alexander who are mentioned by Josephus are members of the royal family. So maybe Alexander was a member of one of the royal Jewish families. And then the text says, as many as were of the family of the high priest. So even though Luke lists some by name, there were other members of the high priest's family present at this council. So we see widespread significant nepotism underway in the maintenance of their power and their wealth. So remember now, this is the family that had overseen the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And they were surely believing that since they had killed Jesus, that the threat was behind them. Right? Who, who wants to stand up for this guy we just crucified? We'll just crucify them too. They figured that threat would work. The Sadducean connection with Rome was critical to the ongoing wealth and power of Annas and his family. And so they rightly perceived the movement of Christ and his followers as a threat to their stability. This growing movement of Christianity was perceived, and again rightly so, to the social order and stability that had been established through the iron fist of Rome and the tool of fear and these public crucifixions and beatings that would take place if um, you showed yourself to be resistant to Rome, and the quickness of Rome to remove any Jewish leaders who didn't keep things squared away. And the text says about the setting, and when they had set them in the midst. So this is the council. All of these wealthy and powerful people linked up with Rome, the same ones who had led to the death of Jesus Christ, they're circled up, because that's how this council would work, and Peter and John are set right in the middle of them. Right in the midst of the highest ruling Jewish court. And this is something you need to see as an important part of this text as well. There were other lower courts that Peter and John could have been taken to. But the highest court immediately assumed the original court, the original jurisdiction on this case. The gospel is spreading so fast that something must be done immediately to stop its spread. When you look at uh, population estimates of Jerusalem at that time, some say 25, 30,000, others say 200,000. When you do the math there, you're looking at between 7% and 27, 30% of the population have become Christians in this short time when you look at the numbers that are out there from various scholars who knew about the population of Israel. Um, so either way you slice that pie, that's a major social change that is taking place before their eyes. These are no small numbers. These are numbers where the whole nation is about to be overturned by Christianity if they don't bring it to a close. And their way of life, their power, their money, everything they have is on the line. So they're serious. They don't have any time for lower courts. And they bring Peter and John before them just like they did Jesus who they killed, whom they killed. It was a very intimidating setting. Think of it. It's a fearful thing to stand before your nation's supreme court. Commentary says, Peter and John, after they were brought into the hall in which the Sanhedrin assembled, were placed in the middle, probably literally as the seats in the Sanhedrin were arranged like the half of a round threshing floor so that they all might see one another. Okay. So what question did this court ask Peter and John? It's not a hard question. It's a very simple question. They say, by what power or by what name have you done this? So note a couple of things. At this point, 
No mention is made of teaching the people or preaching in Christ the resurrection from the dead like we had seen last week in verse 2. That's what motivated them to go and get them and bring them before the council. But now things change. This is a legal setting. And they have a specific legal question that they need to bring before the court. So the council grants the lame man was made whole, as we read in the section that comes after this. They, they know this is a great miracle. They know that all the people have seen it. They cannot deny that a miracle has taken place. They want to know the source of the power that healed the lame man. This is the same approach taken by the Jewish leaders when they confronted Jesus in the temple. This is their way to attack the faithful. Now, it happened on one of those days. This is from Luke chapter 20 again. As he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him. Same people, same group of people, same tactic. What did they say to Jesus at that time? Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? Now, why would they ask this question? Because they want him to blaspheme God. No answer that he gives is going to stand up in their eyes. They're going to claim that he's blaspheming God. If he says it comes from God, if he says it comes from somewhere else, they're going to also charge him with working with the devil, which is what they did in Luke chapter 11. See, in another situation, the Jews had accused Jesus of getting his power from the devil. Luke 11. He was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. It's another miracle. And this one explicitly, we're told, involves casting out a demon. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. This is where they're going in their line of questioning. Commentary says, the members of the Sanhedrin questioned Peter and John concerning the power through which this, i.e. the miraculous healing of the lame man, has taken place. They know that it takes a supernatural power to cure a man who was lame from birth. For devout Jews, there were only two options. It was either the power of God, the Almighty Creator, or the power of the devil, the Elzebul, the prince of demons, that had healed the lame man. The term name links the effects of the miracle-working power with a particular person whose name is invoked during the healing. Peter and John answer the question in verse 10. They give the answer. The lame man who was present was healed in the name of Jesus, the Messiah from Nazareth. In, verse three, in chapter 3, verse 16, Peter had explained that it was not the mere invocation of the name, Jesus, that had magically healed the man, but that it was faith in Jesus that had caused the healing. This man had been given faith in Jesus, and Jesus Christ healed this man by his power through this man's faith. So this is what they're asking, and you know enough about their past and their history to see what they're driving at. They're scared of the people. We know that from the part that comes afterwards. They know they're very limited in what they can do, and they're trying to trick Peter and John into something they can use to accuse them. What does Peter say? Well, it's a beautiful thing. You know what Peter's going to say, because he said it. (laughs) He said it at Pentecost. He said it after the man was healed, and now he says it again. Very briefly, he says it again. Peter's got the message of the kingdom of God in his mind and in his heart, and everywhere he goes, he shares that message even encircled by the rulers of the Jews who had put his Lord to death. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What a rich and clear answer Peter gives. First note that Luke tells us that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Where does the power come from in Peter's life? From the Holy Spirit. And so by inference, Luke is giving us the answer to their question ahead of time. Where did the power come from to heal the man? From the throne of God. The Lord Jesus Christ 
healing this man through the touch of his Holy Spirit. The commentary says, Luke describes Peter speaking to the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin, I like this description, with an outburst of spiritual power. Was he already filled with the Spirit? Yes, he was. Does the Lord God from heaven sometimes give us extra input from his Holy Spirit to help us in situations like this? Yes, he does. Going on with the commentary. The use of this particular aorist participle followed by a genitive means that the Spirit was the immediate inspiration of the speech event. Peter speaks for both himself and for John, who will reappear in verse 13. You'll hear Peter saying we. So he's referencing at least himself and John. What does he say to begin with? Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. I don't know if he's standing or if he's seated, but he's not afraid. He's not ashamed. He communicates with these leaders very directly. He's not intimidated. He articulately addresses the rulers of his nation. Jesus, his Lord, he knows this, had stood before this council and then was led away to crucifixion. Jesus said very little when this council questioned him. Peter gives them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in a very clear, succinct fashion when they question him. Commentary says, Peter, addressing the assembled members of the Sanhedrin, focuses particularly on the leaders, the chief priests of Jerusalem, which included the present and former high priests, and on the elders, the senior members of the Jewish elite. The polite address is what one expect in a situation where the life of Peter and John might be at stake. How would you talk if you thought your life might be at stake? Jesus had stood at the very same spot a few months earlier with the interrogation resulting in the charge of blasphemy and the transfer to the Roman governor who was successfully petitioned and pressured to pronounce a death sentence. This is where he is. But he's not afraid. Listen to how he goes on. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? So, this is their nation's supreme court. All of them have been called together for this very important gathering. And you see how Peter kind of rephrases it. He restates the question, emphasizing a good deed done to a helpless man. And so by doing so, you can see he courageously challenges the council's decision to arrest him and John in the first place. Peter does not allow the council to sidestep the beautiful reality of what Jesus did when he healed the lame man. And he's also referencing that which he knows is controlling them, as we read later. They know they have very limited options because this man was healed. And it was a good deed before the people. Commentary says, since no one would dispute that curing a lame man who had been begging at a gate of the temple all his life was a kind deed that benefited not only the man, but the society at large, Peter's ironic statement represents his first argument. He challenges the Jewish authorities to recognize the good deed and to acknowledge the benefaction by expressing gratitude. Not to do so would be shameful. Peter clarifies in the next sentence that he does not expect to receive gratitude and honor personally as it was not he, but Jesus, who has healed the lame man. So in this opening statement, he makes it clear that they're not only acting foolishly, but they're being ungrateful for Jesus coming into their midst and healing a man. He uses the word judged. So this is a formal judicial proceeding that they're facing. And he says, by what means? So now he gets to their specific question after his introduction. And then he says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel. As Peter is making his case, giving his defense before the Sanhedrin, he's not just speaking to them. He doesn't attempt to fashion a speech that would be only fitting for the Sanhedrin. Think of how God worked in Peter's mind at this time. He doesn't only fashion his defense, but he also preaches the gospel for all to hear. He wants all the people of Israel to hear what he has to say. Peter sees their arrest and their trial. Think of it. He sees his persecution and the threat to his life as an opportunity to preach the gospel to all the people of Israel. He's not afraid 
He's embracing the opportunity that he has as long as he draws breath. Next, here's what he tells him. That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man stands here before you whole. So finally, after this brief introduction, he gives them a very direct and clear answer to their question. He doesn't give a riddle. He doesn't beat around the bush. He tells them. He points to the healed man as he does this. He's he's a brilliant defense. He points to it. This lame man was healed by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. By him, by Jesus, the lame man stands before the council whole. Checkmate. He gives them the answer. The commentary says, Peter asserts that the healing miracle took place in the name of Jesus. In other words, the lame man who is present and who stands before them healed, physically sound and well, has been made to stand on his feet on account of the effective power of Jesus. The perfect indicative underlines the fact that the cure of the man who was lame from birth and who now stands before them It is a permanent state of affairs for this man. And the fact that the man stands before them, right in front of the first row seats in the Sanhedrin, cannot be disputed. So the case that Peter makes is an airtight case. But note, praise be to God, Peter gave them more than what they asked for. He gave them enough to be saved. He gave them three other key facts about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This Jesus who healed this man. First, he uses the word Christ. Jesus proclaims to this erudite group of scripture scholars that the man who healed the lame man is their Messiah. The one written about in their scripture. And that they missed him. They misjudged their Messiah. They ignored and despised their long-awaited deliverer. Peter asserts that, commentary, Peter asserts that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He is Israel's Savior, the eschatological agent of God who came to restore the nation and to bring salvation. Peter is not asserting that Jesus is just also called Christ, a statement which is nonsensical in a Jewish context. As Peter addresses the Sanhedrin in Hebrew or in Aramaic, he would have used the word Messiah, which is not a Hebrew name, but a reference to the promised Messiah. Peter asserts that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. So he makes it very clear in his answer by whom this was done, their Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, that they killed. Point number two. Jesus was crucified, and you did it. He points the finger at them again for the third time. Once again, Peter makes a clear public indictment of the Jewish leaders as guilty of crucifying Jesus, their Messiah. Peter tells them the truth about their own sin. He tells them the truth about their own sin. He's not afraid to put these national judges before the supreme judge of all. He knows who Jesus Christ is. And he knows that these Jewish leaders are in jeopardy because of their broken relationship with their Messiah. Peter is faithful to Christ's command to be Christ's witness. Yet even in this indictment is found their salvation if they will only trust in Christ's death. The very death that they essentially brought about, that death will bring them forgiveness of sin if they will trust in Christ. Commentary says, Peter asserts that the Jewish leaders are responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. There may have been other Jews living in Nazareth who had the name Jesus, but there was only one Jesus of Nazareth whose crucifixion had been engineered by the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. Peter not only charges the Jewish leaders of being complicit in and guilty of Jesus' execution by the Roman authorities, his statement about Jesus' crucifixion is at the same time a proclamation of the good news of God's granting forgiveness of sins and salvation on account of the suffering and death of Jesus, the Messiah. The third thing he says, whom God raised from the dead. It's the same thing 
He said every single time, are you getting the pattern? Are you getting the message? Is this going to be a part of what you say and what you preach and what you share when you share the gospel with people whom God raised from the dead? Once again, Peter proclaims that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was raised from the dead. He tells them, yes, you killed your Messiah, but God raised him from the dead. You don't get the last word. His father raised him from the dead. It was a dirty action that they carried out against Christ and their efforts to maintain their power and their authority. And they did not get the last word. And similarly, if they will trust in Christ's resurrection from the dead, they will be delivered from their sins and brought into a new life. Commentary says, Jesus has been raised from the dead by God. And this means that Jesus is alive and has the power to heal the lame man. This means that Jesus, the crucified man from Nazareth, is vindicated and confirmed as God's Messiah. The healing miracle proves the reality of Christ's resurrection and it demonstrates the continued power of Jesus, the risen Messiah. The fact that the miraculous healing has happened in and through the powerful presence of Jesus, whom God has vindicated in the resurrection and whose continuing life and ministry as God's anointed one has been demonstrated in the cure of the lame man should satisfy the curiosity of the Sanhedrin and lead to a swift and positive conclusion of this examination. At the same time, since it was God who has raised Jesus from the dead, the Jewish leaders who have been complicit in Christ's crucifixion are indeed guilty of having committed a sacrilege by rejecting God's anointed, even though it was the plan of God who was fulfilled in Jesus' death. They carried out that plan. So Peter continues to give a little bit of extra information to them. A very important scripture from Psalm 118. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. So he takes them to their scripture to teach them about the Messiah that they rejected. He quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. He instructs these Jewish leaders when he's before their court, after he has set them before God's court. In fact, he goes on now to make his case, God's case, against them. What does he tell them from Psalm 118.22? Well, first of all, the scripture foretold that the Jewish leaders, you builders, would reject their Messiah. He makes it clear that these, the ones that he's talking to, you are the ones fulfilling what Psalm 118.22 predicted. You builders. Two. Their rejection did not hinder God's plan to exalt Christ to the Father's right hand. It's like what he already said. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. You builders rejected him, but he's now the chief cornerstone. Their rejected Messiah has become the chief, the head over all things. That Greek term there also means head. He is the chief stone, the chief cornerstone. Now, thirdly, by implication, the language that he's using he shows them that their temple is no longer the temple that matters. By implication, he's telling them, oh, this temple that you're trusting in and all this power and wealth that you think you have that's going to protect you, it will not protect you. You're thinking about the wrong temple. Rather, the temple being built upon Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the new temple that is replacing their glorious temple. Their temple will not last. The church of the living God marches on. This is what he's teaching them. And Paul takes up this beautiful reality in Ephesians chapter 2 and makes it exactly clear what Peter is saying. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. Each one of us, we are stones that he is building together over time into his eternal temple. He's making it clear to them that what they have is being taken away and what cannot be shaken has arrived. Commentary says, first, Jesus has been vindicated by God. Second, the Jewish leaders have been mistaken in their rejection of Jesus. Third, the faithfully misguided action of the Jewish leaders has been reversed by God. 
who has raised Jesus from the dead. Fourth, God is building a new building. The reference to a cornerstone suggests a monumental building, a new spiritual temple in which God's presence among His people is based on Christ's death and resurrection and thus contingent upon the acceptance of God's revelation in Jesus, Israel's Messiah, and upon faith in the significance of Jesus for God's people. Now, you may recall from when we went through Luke that Peter heard Jesus reference this scripture. He had listened to Jesus quote this same scripture when he interpreted the parable that had so forcefully indicted the Jews in Luke chapter 20. Listen to this parable, and then Jesus uses this scripture to interpret the parable. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. So you see the mistreatment is accelerating. It's growing. It's getting worse. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And Jesus asked this question at the end of the parable. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Then Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever So that's the end of quoting Psalm 118. And now Jesus says, Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So, if you think about it, by allusion, Peter is giving a strong warning to these Jewish leaders by quoting this scripture. If they continue to reject Jesus, they will be ground to powder. The implied threat that they intended to place upon Peter and John is have no effect upon them because the real threat comes from the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ and it is for these haughty leaders who need to humble themselves in order to escape the wrath of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's not afraid to preach the full gospel even before the nation's Supreme Court that did indeed have the power to put them to death. If they continue to reject Jesus, they will be ground to powder. They will be a part of that perverse generation that will be destroyed. They will remain a part of that generation upon which will come all the wrath of God for the blood of the prophets killed in Jerusalem through the generations. So, why not fall down before him and be broken of insulin Insolence and pride instead. It seems like an easy choice. Let us all fall down before Christ. Peter sums it up. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yes, this is one of the key texts supporting the doctrine of the exclusivity of the gospel. There is only one way to heaven. Jesus Christ is not one of many ways to get to salvation. Oh yeah, you're right, Jesus. You trust in Jesus, you'll get to heaven. That's true, I don't doubt that. But there's other ways. No, that is false. But in the near context, we need to think about this statement a little bit more. At this point, he's gone well beyond the question of the source of power for the man's healing. He has turned the tables and put these Jewish leaders before God's bar at this point in time. And he's making it clear now in this closing statement that Jesus is their judge. 
He's not only the one through whom this man was healed, he is their judge, and they need to make peace with him. You ask Peter about Jesus, and you don't just get a little bit of the story. You get the whole story. So he emphasizes to these Jewish leaders, they would be ever so foolish to keep waiting for the Messiah to arrive. So in the near context of what Peter's saying to them, he's saying, look, stop waiting for your Messiah. Stop looking for him. There's no other Messiah coming. He's the one and only. All those scriptures about him have been fulfilled. Stop looking. It is in vain. There will be no other name under heaven for the Jews to find as their Messiah, though they wait an eternity and scour the entire universe, every seen and unseen corner, they will never find their Messiah unless they look to Christ. Their search will be in vain until they set their attention upon Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And of course that is true for every human being that's ever walked this earth looking for salvation. Commentary says, Peter concludes his speech with the assertion that Jesus is the only means of salvation. And this term translated as salvation is used here for the first time in the book of Acts. The basic meaning of the word is explained by Acts 2, verse 40 and verse 47. Salvation means not to share the fate of this corrupt generation. This is good. This is the near context of the deliverance. And it means to be added to the community of the followers of Jesus. You see the negative, the avoidance of the curses, and the positive the reception of the blessings. Going on with the commentary. Thus salvation is negatively deliverance from God's judgment and deliverance of the individual from sin and guilt, which are the reason for divine judgment. And salvation is positively loyalty to Christ as God's messianic servant, rejoicing in the reality of God's presence with us, rejoicing in the reality of transformation through the Holy Spirit and integration into the new people of God. Praise be to God for his word. So a few questions. Um, Kind of brought some questions to our mind at the beginning of the sermon about persecution, about how we'll deal with it. First question. Do you see how the clear message of the gospel will bring persecution upon the people of God? The clear message of the gospel includes who Jesus is, what he's done, and that the person you're talking to is a sinner who needs to repent and trust in him. It's not an academic, pie-in-the-sky set of beliefs that someone needs to hold to. They need to see their own sin, and they need to do business with God over their own sin. And do you see how the clear message of the gospel brings persecution upon the people of God? Upon you if you preach the clear message of the gospel. Next, do you see how the forces of evil will use ecclesiastical and political governments to attack the people of God? So our civil government and also church governments will be used to attack the people of God. And often those two devilish forces will team up together against the people of God throughout history. How did our nation come into existence fleeing that combined tyranny that was present in England? One one of the great impetus behind one of the biggest migrations of people to America was for that purpose. Next. Have you made peace that following Jesus could bring about your death? I mean, when you preach the gospel to somebody, you know, believe and life will be so wonderful, right? Well, you'll be filled with joy that can't be taken away, and you'll have a a heart of gladness in eternal life. You'll have heaven born into your heart, and there'll be a source of joy and gladness that none can touch. But this world will hate you, and this world will want to kill you and your children, if possible. And if you don't understand that about Christianity, then you're missing the reality of what we've been called into. They can't silence us. They'll imprison us. If 
they can't keep us in prison, they'll kill us. That is the devil's way. That is the way that the forces of evil work against the people of God. So do you understand this? The Bible is demonstrating this pattern to us then, and it continues. And this isn't just for you. It's for you and your family, for your children. I brought it up last week. Do you understand that when you identify with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, a true church seeking after God and seeking to be sanctified and made like Jesus together, that's a beautiful thing. It's a joyful thing. We have the fellowship. We continue steadfastly in the doctrine of the apostles and the fellowship and the, um, the bread and in the prayers. We continue in these things steadfastly. We have all these blessings. But you, you have to understand that we're also learning together how to be hated. <laughs> we're learning together how to be hated because we're becoming like Jesus. And no pupil is greater than his master. Will you be intimidated by the threats that come against you? They'll bring, they'll bring threats against Christians. And a lot of times it'll be indirect, right? It'll be something that's offensive to Christians that we will not do. And then you have to agree to do it or you lose your job or you don't get promoted. Things of this nature. Will you be intimidated? Why wasn't Peter intimidated? Well, we see later. And the council saw it because they had been with Jesus. Because Peter knew Jesus. Peter knew of his love and his power and his faithfulness to him. Peter knew the message was true. He was not afraid because he knew Jesus. And and another question, isn't it beautiful to consider God's sovereignty of having John who's probably Theophilus, at this event to hear the gospel from Peter. Who knows, maybe this was one of the first times, or maybe the first time that he had heard the gospel. And we know from the introduction to Acts and to Luke that Theophilus is a Christian by the time he receives these two volumes from Luke. Next. Do you see the devil's pattern of using the wealth and power of governments to attack God's people? I brought that up. And associated with this is the, do you see the importance of biblical government? Do you see the importance of biblical government? This is one of the reasons why I have become a Presbyterian. Because I believe that Presbyterianism takes seriously the threat of unbiblical government. Now, I'm not claiming that biblically sound governmental structures can protect us from wicked people filling those posts. I'm not making that claim. But we are especially in jeopardy when we have unbiblical forms of government. Unbiblical forms of church government, unbiblical forms of civil government. And so, if we see in Scripture the devil's strategy is to hijack civil and ecclesiastical governments and use them to attack the people of God, Shouldn't that motivate us to a couple of things? What things? Number one, prayer. When you pray, do you pray against the demonic forces in the spiritual realm who demonize political and religious leaders? And again, I'm referencing a lot from the book of Revelation. Not just there, but a lot from there. Do you pray for God to bottle up these demons in the abyss and to cork it so they cannot get out. These are biblical prayers. There is such a place called the abyss. We read about it today. There is the Lord Jesus Christ's power to put them in the abyss, and he has delegated that to you as one of his priests and kings in the earth. And that when you pray according to his name with faith against his enemies, you are asking him to do that which is pleasing to him, to take every one of his enemies and put them under his feet in the lowest place for these demons under his feet is inside that abyss. Now they can come out. We see that in the book of Revelation. They can go in and they can come out. So when we pray, we want to pray specifically and ask God to put them in there and to keep them in there until Christ returns. And to put up a flaming warning to every demonic host that comes near such a praying people of what happens to them. You know, bad guys that put up their 
They're pikes with the heads on top to scare people away, right? When we pray, we want that to be what is up. And these demons who were terrified of Jesus Christ and said, please don't torment us, they will come before his face and his power when they come against us or any of God's people that we pray for and that we lift up. Do you understand the importance of biblical government and praying this way for the protection of our civil leaders and our ecclesiastical leaders and for the wisdom to establish biblical, ecclesiastical, and political governments. A lot to that, but we do see that in this text warning us. Next, do you always, over and over again, like Peter, point to Christ as the Messiah, crucified, resurrected, within the context of salvation from real, immediate sin? Not sin in the abstract but real sin. So yesterday. Was it yesterday? No, it was Friday. So Friday. Dropped by the abortion mill. I'm there. And one of the men who brought his girlfriend to kill a baby is there. And he chooses to come and talk to us. And for those of you who've been there, you know how uncommon that is for folks to come and talk. They usually ignore us as we're pleading with them or worse. Um, and he had done some of the worse before this. But he comes over and he starts talking to us. And he keeps distracting from the gospel. But when I was speaking to him, I said, sir, you are here at a place where all they do is kill babies inside that building. Your sin is on display, and sir, you are, you are participating in murder. And that is offensive to God. That's what's happening. He got very angry. Uh, he said some choice words to me and started to walk away. And I'm not sure what really happened, but he turned around, and he came back over, and he sat down and started having a conversation with Steve. And with me. I don't know what God did in his life, but I know that it was the real immediate sin that was the topic of conversation when he turned around and came back over and sat down for a conversation. And then he allowed me to pray for him, and I did. And I prayed the gospel. I prayed for the Lord to give him faith. But I think it's a demonstration. The reason I tell this story is I do think it's a demonstration of the power of the gospel and that the gospel must, must include the presentation of real, immediate sin when we are talking to people. Now, you may converse with someone and you don't know what real, immediate sins are in their life, but you can use God's law and God will, by His Spirit, prick their conscience, right? So you can start going through the commandments, well, asking them questions. And... One of the things that you'll find is it's very unusual to have to work too hard before someone admits that they're a sinner. Now, they don't, they're not going to admit the implications of that very easily. Yeah, nobody's perfect, right? That kind of thing. All right, so real immediate sin, not sin in the abstract. You see, that's what Peter did. He points the finger right at the Jews and tells them that. And this is a real point of controversy, especially at the abortion mill. They're gonna, there's a lot of contrary voices saying, no, no, you can't do that. You can't talk about sin in that place. Well, I think they're wrong. I think they're ignoring the example set for us by Peter. Next, do you also share the exclusivity of the gospel when you're given opportunity to preach the gospel? And to point out to folks that there's no other way except through Christ. There's no other name under heaven. And finally, gladness and smiles in your soul. Do you rejoice in the salvation that is yours in Christ? Do you find your soul filled with peace and joy and gladness? And that when the cup gets disturbed, that's what comes out is peace and joy and gladness. Brothers and sisters, we've been delivered from sin, death, and hell. And we've been brought back into, we've been made a part of the restoration of all things. Do you live in this? Do you, light, do you delight in the love of Christ and the love of God for you? 
and His power poured out in you and through you by His Spirit. Rejoicing in all the means of grace that He has given to you. Do you walk in these things? And do you do this before any and all audiences? You see how Peter, he's the same. You know, we become like Jesus, right? Who's Jesus? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? We become like Him. We become predictable. We become like Peter. You poke Him and Jesus comes out. That's the kind of people that we want to be in the face of all threats for the glory of His name. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, how we rejoice in the life, the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, in His ascension as our Messiah, His enthronement, His glory, His power, His love. We praise You that as we confess our sin to You, You forgive us, and You make us more like Christ our Lord. Father, we do rejoice that no threat that comes against us can keep us from your presence or your blessings in our lives that you have indeed set a table for us in the midst of our enemies. And we will praise you and we will worship you and we will have the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ on our tongues in all places for your glory, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.